According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3 this morning, picking up uh, where we left off on Wednesday as we discuss the, uh, the profit and loss statement here that Paul is making where he's recategorizing many of his prophets, in fact all of his prophets, and putting them all over into the lost category in uh, view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and the intimacy of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that comes to know him more and more in the uh, unfolding of the Christian walk. And so we deal with it there in, uh, in verse 8. Before we begin this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father and His faithfulness to uh, humble us, that we might be filled with the Spirit and to learn the living and abiding Word of God. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning, just thankful for your truth, for the grace provision that we have to assemble together. I thank you, Father, for the privilege that it is that we can uh, study the living and abiding Word of God, that we can present ourselves before you as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. So, Father, open the eyes of our understanding and bless our study this morning. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as we uh, talked about, there was a past adjustment that was made in verse 7, and we uh, studied that in point 1. That everything that was an actual gain for Paul, he re-reckoned into the loss category. And that's a perfect tense verb that speaks of a past completed action that still continues with present ongoing results. And that's in the past. We transition from the past tense to the present tense when we get to verse 8. Because he says, even more than all of that, beyond that, including, <laughs> and we'll talk about the string of particles here that uh, demonstrates how excited Paul is about this, uh, but even more than all of that put together, I presently now count all things to be lost. So it's not just that he re-reckoned back in the day, he continues to re-reckon continuously in present time. And that is a, that is a daily uh, function. That is a, a moment-by-moment consideration. And we all should be mindful of that if we've had a, a past reckoning ourselves, that we can't just rest in that, that we have to continually, day by day, have ongoing adjustments. And really, I think the whole chapter deals with the ongoing adjustments. As we see uh, you know, in verse 15, if in anything you have a different attitude, God will also reveal that to you. God is very good about revealing uh, attitude adjustments and things that need to need to happen there. And so here in Philippians 3, I think we're ready now to transition and to, to break out all the, the meat that can be found here in verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So we get to point two then, as we look at verse eight, I have the right slide there. Above and beyond that initial adjustment, Paul continues to make ongoing profit and loss adjustments. Because there can be times in in our daily walk, in our Christian walk, that we start, we lose focus and we start to uh, we start to count on things, we start to bank on things that we think are to our credit, that we think are a gain, that we think are in the positive column. And we've got to get there too, just stop and say, wait a minute, I'm starting to boast of myself now, aren't I? I need to let that go. I need to make sure that I'm boasting in the Lord and boasting only in the Lord. And so it does require the ongoing additional profit lost adjustments regarding any and all future gains that human viewpoint might be willing to claim. Now, Wednesday night when we were here, I spent some time dealing with uh, conjunctions and particles, and really the link between verse 7 and verse 8 is quite extraordinary in, uh, in the Greek, because we have a chain of, uh, of, of expressions here. I'm not going to bore you with it for too long this morning, but the Allah Menunga Kai is three sequential uh, conjunctions. It's, it's a but, and it's a nevertheless, and it's an and or an even. And it's, it's actually more than three because uh, menunga is, is three all on its own. Menunga is, is, a, is a compound where you have men and un and ge. Uh, that's three particles all by themselves. And you pack them all together into, uh, into you know, one word, menunga, 
and, and then you add a word in front of it and a word behind it, so you end up with you know five or six conjunctions here that are all packed together in a very rapid-fire format. In fact, it's, it's quite emotional, it's quite extraordinary, and it shows, I think, the, uh, the excitement that Paul has to launch into this description. So excited is he, in fact, that verse 8 begins this, this monster run-on sentence that continues through 8, 9, 10, 11. You go all the way down to verse 11 when he says, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, and that's all one single sentence that starts with uh, the Alak Menunga Kai there in, uh, in verse 8. So anyway, and you can kind of tell when you look at a number of English Bibles, uh, when you get a, a variety of translations that you're kind of dealing with a little riddle there to, to unravel, but um, the, the New King James uses yet indeed, and the King James has yea doubtless, which I like. Anyway, it is uh, a remarkable Greek particle that launches this long, complicated, and emotionally passionate sentence. And you can tell that Paul is, is really worked up over what he's talking about. Not just what he reckoned in verse 7, but how he continues to reevaluate and re-reckon um, all day, every day, as it were. All right, so we get past that, and now we're going to emphasize the present tense as we deal with this. The perfect indicative from verse 7 gives way to the present indicative of verse 8. And, and that's just a grammatical way to recognize that it, verse 7 is in the past, that's what he did reckon. Verse 8 is in the presence. That's what he continues to reckon. Continuous action in present time. The verb is hegeomai. Hegeomai. H-E-G-E-O-M-A-I. Hegeomai. It's one of our thinking verbs in the New Testament. You remember Philippians is the book of thinking verbs. There's a lot of thinking that takes place in the book of Philippians. 28 usages in the New Testament. We're not going to look at them, but there's a lot of them in the New Testament. And it's among several of the Greek verbs for reckoning, considering, or imputing. And that's what we have here. You have other verbs like logizomai, you have other verbs, uh, phreneo, we've got other verbs uh, that we've seen in Philippians already. And you end up with, with several uh, comparable expressions that are used either synonymously or interchangeably. Uh, that are used in a, in, a, in a connected way. And sometimes that becomes more significant than the actual vocabulary itself. You want to see, and this is what the, the Lao and Nida uh, lexicon is, is advantageous for, because it structures everything based upon the semantic domain, based upon related expressions as opposed to just an alphabetical list of, uh, of verbs. Um, but that's what we deal with there in, uh, in that and I thought that I had made those clickable. I guess I didn't. Oh, there they are. Ha, huh. okay, that's what I did. <laughs> and so um, let me just read these Philippians references and then we'll see some of these other verbs. And you ask, well, why is this important? Why does this even matter? Well, I, it's crucial. It's actually fundamental to, to biblical Christianity. And if you, uh, if you don't understand how your sins were reckoned to Jesus and how Jesus' righteousness was reckoned to you, <laughs> I'd say uh, we've got to start all over again and come back to the very basics of the gospel. Let's understand what does it mean to have eternal life? What does it mean to go to heaven? Because we're sinners, and none of us deserves to, to even have eternal life. We're sinners. And yet God in His grace took our sin and reckoned it, imputed it, reckoned it to Jesus, and judged it there on the cross. And then He takes the righteousness of Jesus and reckons it to us imputes it to us. So these themes are, are actually foundational to, uh, to our experience. Uh, back in chapter 1, we had one of these words in, uh, in verse 7 when it says, for it is only right for me to think this way about you all, not to feel. It's, it's unfortunate that the New American Standard uses the word feel there in verse 7. It is only right for me to think this way about you all because I have you in my heart. And so how do we reckon one another? How do we consider one another in, uh, in, in, uh, in, those, in those views? Since I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. And so we dealt with it there in, uh, in verse 7 of chapter 1. Likewise in chapter 2, look at all these uh, verbs that speak of this. In verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Regard them, reckon them, 
Okay, and and this is the the aspect of it. It doesn't mean that they intrinsically are more important, but you consider that they are, and in your attitude, they are. They become more important, more important than yourself, because that's how you reckoned them. That's how you imputed importance to their account and unimportance to your own account, and and you did that imputation. You did that reckoning, and uh, and and you're told to do that, and that's what Jesus did. Jesus reckoned that we were more important. That's why he went to the cross. See, he wasn't thinking about himself on the cross, he was thinking about us. And, uh, and the, uh, the applications there. Verse 6, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. This too is a part of our considerations, and what do we reckon, and what do we impute, and how do we assign these things mentally in our, in our decision-making process. Verse 25, I thought it necessary... I considered, I reckoned it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. And so this was a reckoning that Paul had to go through. Okay, And each and every one of these times that we come across the thinking verbs and we come across the applications that are made, we understand that the Bible tells us how to think and God holds us accountable if we don't think in the way that we're told how to think. Okay, that our mental attitude sins are, are just as bad as our overt sins and our sins of the tongue, that we are accountable for how we think, which is why the renewing of the Word of God is so crucial as we as Romans 12, 1 and 2 makes clear. All right, have I seen all these yet? Verse 29, receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. Again, that high regard. So we have hegetamai as our verb. And uh, so it's a thinking verb. Sometimes it's used uh, uh, as a substantive noun. Sometimes it's used, uh, and actually it's a word of leadership. Your leaders in a, in a local assembly are uh, a term for leadership is this thinking term, which is kind of a nice clue too that your, your leaders are expected to think in, uh, in that way. All right, so... Let me, I'm not going to take a lot of time with this either because I want to gain ground on, on some of this other stuff. But the, um, the, uh, the Lao and Nida lexicon, if you're not familiar with it, most dictionaries you know, are alphabetized. So you have your A words and your B words and your C words and you work all the way through. But the Lao and Nida lexicon is different. It organizes everything on the basis of um, uh, meaning, on the basis of domain. And so if you have a, a semantic domain like let me just pull up the first one here, 31.1, and, and I'll show you how this works. You end up with uh, section 31 is, is a collection of, of verbs and nouns and expressions and terms that, that center on thinking, that center on how do you hold a view, how do you believe something, how do you trust something. And then there's subdomains underneath that, A through J, uh, and, and so you see them listed there in the table of contents to, to have an opinion, to hold a view, right? And what's the, what's the point of that? Doesn't everybody have an opinion? Okay. And uh, how about to hold a wrong view, to be mistaken? That, that makes a difference, doesn't it? Uh, or uh, verbs of agreement or consent, like when you confess your sins, homilegeo, you uh, are agreeing with God on a particular sin, and you are confessing and you are restored to fellowship. Um, Anyway, you see the, the, the different categories there. When we center on the very first one, to have an opinion, to hold a view, this is the semantic range that, uh, that we're dealing with here in Philippians chapter 3 this morning. And you'll notice when you look at the verbs across the top there, it's not, a, it's not an alphabetized list like a normal dictionary. And so it includes the verbs like phreneo, uh, krino, which is a verb to judge, logizomai, where we get logic, right? This is where you have an actual imputation. Hegeamai, that's our term this morning in Philippians 3. And then just simply echo, to have, to have a, a view or to have a thought. And so this is what we are dealing with here. And that's the, uh, that's the entry there. And there's seven of them. One through seven are the uh, different expressions that are found in this particular domain. Anyway, so if you have that available to you in the Logos software, if you have the print copy available to you uh, in the church library, you have it at home, uh, I do recommend it. It's, it's useful and it's, and it's helpful uh, in, in contrast to other lexicons. The other domain is 57.227, and this is one that speaks of possessions, 
to possess, to transfer, to exchange. And um, that's the concept that we have here if you're keeping records, okay? That if it's a legal exchange, if it's, a, if it's an economic exchange, if it's a business transaction of some sort, then, uh, you know, you want to have, you want to have that recorded. You want to have it very public. You want to have it known that, hey, this is no longer my property. I'm signing the deed over that this person gave me money and I'm, I'm disclaiming all ownership now and this new person has the ownership. And so all of that is above board and all of that is, is reckoned. All of that is imputed and tracked. And, uh, this is the domain that, that we're dealing with in Philippians chapter three. Because Paul is taking all the things that were gained to him, and he is now re-reckoning them in his in his ledger, and putting all of that in the in the debit column, putting all of that in as a loss. He's writing it all off, in contrast with the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. So these are the uh, this is the semantic domain then where you have the the verbs like legizomai for imputation, that even though I'm a sinner. Jesus Christ took that ownership of that sin <laughs> and said, nope, Bob Bolitter doesn't own that anymore. That was transferred to Jesus Christ. And it was written in the record book. And it's all recorded there, see. And I hope these things make sense. And I hope especially uh, we, we may have an advantage in that because our culture, our nation, our, the history of, of liberty and freedom has been such that, uh, that we have, since our founding, uh, operated under rule of law. We've operated with uh, a stable government. We've, we've operated with property rights and ownership. And, and the fact that not only does the government register our, those transactions, but will then defend us if we have to have a, a legal dispute, if we have to go to law with respect to property rights. And, and these things I'm describing, by the way, Go to Nicaragua and try something like this, right? Go to most places around the world. Go to Cameroon and see uh, see how well the property rights are upheld and, and see in a lot of places around this world uh, they, they don't have the respect for ownership and property and rule of law. Uh, the things that I'm talking about this morning, uh, we take them for granted and they don't exist in a lot of places around the world. So anyway, praise the Lord for that as He uh, as he provides there. I think the last thing I'm going to say here, because we're talking about a comparison of extreme here in verse 8, Philippians 3.8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value. This is a surpassing value. And how far is it surpassing? Infinitely surpassing. It is so far beyond comparison, it is hyperbolic. It is, uh, in fact, even the, the verb hyperbolo that is part of our terminology that addresses the fact that it is over and beyond. It is beyond comparison. It is, it is so out of comparison, it's almost insulting to, to have the conversation. Okay? Like my, my basketball skills compared to Michael Jordan's basketball skills, right? You know, we can make a comparison, but it's really kind of dumb to do that because it's just, it's no comparison. It's just such an extreme. And that's, uh, that's what we deal here. When the comparison becomes so extreme, it is an incomparable contrast. It is an incomparable contrast. And Paul is, is good with this. Paul loves doing this, in fact. He loves to take the everythings on the one hand and contrast them with the nothings on the other hand. And he likes to draw these incomparable contrasts. Second Corinthians 3.10. You know what I'm talking about? Momentary light affliction. What's that? Is that worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory that is going to be revealed to us? No. There's no comparison at all. And, uh, and he'll do this in several, several places. 2 Corinthians 3.10, talking about glory. You know, in the Old Testament, they had a glory. Moses had a glory. Moses got to go into a tent and talk to the Lord. And then he'd come out of the tent, and his face would be shining. That's kind of, that's a glory. Isn't that cool? Because you're in a tent with the Lord, and then you walk out to, to be preaching to the Jews and talking to them, and, and, and your face will be glowing. That's a glory. And we read about it here in 2 Corinthians 3. And it's different, though. It's less than the glory we have in the church age in Christ. And um, 2 Corinthians 3, 7 says, But if the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses... And it's kind of tough to look at if your face is glowing. But then it would start to fade. 
that glory would start to fade, right? And then you have to go back into the tent again. And that fading would be kind of discouraging, don't you think? So Moses put a veil on his face and they wouldn't see the glow and then they wouldn't see the fade. Anyway, Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? What we have in the church age is far beyond anything the Old Testament ever dreamed of. For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. Indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. And that's the point. If it's been surpassed, and if it's been surpassed by such a degree that you look back and think, wow, did that even, did that even have a glory back in the day? And you have to remind yourself, yes, it did. <laughs> back in the day, it did. That was, that was the pinnacle back then, right? It's like um, Olympic events, Olympic swimming and other events, you know, the um, when I was a kid and, you know, watching these swimmers and, and uh, you know, Mark Spitz and who were some of those guys, gold medalists in the 1970s, couldn't even qualify today. The gold medal world record time in the 1970s doesn't make the cut in, you know, in today's uh, swimming teams and, the, and the, uh, just the advancements in athletics and performance and equipment and, and training and medication and everything else. And so how do you compare how do you compare eras? You know, you really can't when it comes to that. You just gotta kinda compare them within their own decade and, and amongst themselves. When a comparison becomes so extreme, they're not even comparable. They become an incomparable contrast. In Second uh, Corinthians chapter four and verse seven, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Talking about our physical bodies. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. God in His grace plan puts that contrast there in such a glorious way that we have on the one hand, we have our fallen bodies. Those bodies of sin, those fallen things with sickness and disease and everything else. And it is so pathetically relative and, and sinful and whatever. And then the, when the grace of God does its work in and through us for His good pleasure, when, uh, when spiritual fruit is attained for all eternity, uh, who gets the credit for that? <laughs> Can we boast in that? And uh, you talk about a contrast, the power will be of God and not from ourselves. And, uh, and this is, you know, again, it's, it's an extreme. It's a comparison of extreme that is so extreme the uh, contrast becomes incomparable. And then you finally you reach the point where you say, you know what? I don't want to do anything in the flesh ever again. I don't want to do anything with human effort ever again. I want everything I do to be spirit-filled, to be God-produced, to, uh, so that the surpassing glory will be uh, from Him and not from me. Also in chapter 4, verse 17. Verse 16 says, Though we do not lose heart, uh, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And it is so extreme, it's difficult to even put them, you know, to put them on a plane where you can examine them side by side because they are so extreme. Momentary, as in contrast with eternal, light in contrast with uh, weight and uh, affliction, in contrast with glory, you got a, a, a triplet here, and it's all being surpassed by the reward that we have in heaven. That's why it's worth it. That's why when we when we're being tested on earth, we don't keep you know hating ourselves and hating our testing and shaking our fist at God and getting all mad because you know I've got a financial test or an employment test or a health test or a or whatever I've got going on, and I think I've got problems. I'm going to complain about it. Wait a minute, what am I complaining about here? a momentary light affliction. So let me stop and say, all right, Father, it's only for this moment that I have this test. <laughs> and it's really, it's a light test compared to your power which can be brought to bear. And is it an affliction? Okay, it's an affliction, but it's also a glory. It's producing a glory for Jesus Christ if I submit to it, if I learn the lessons from it. And so all of these things uh, help us in this regard. Ephesians has several as well, and these aren't often as easy to, 
to see, and uh, the rarely are they, they dealt with. You get into some pretty deep things here. Ephesians 1, 19, 2, 7, and 3, 19. But this is his prayer. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is praying for the saints in Ephesus. And uh, he prays without ceasing. And he says, I do not cease, in verse 16, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Okay? And what we're talking about, that increasing knowledge, is not just coming to know Christ at, at salvation, but you keep knowing him more and more and more as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and then here comes the surpassing, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. The surpassing greatness of his power. That's greater than the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of inheritance in the saints. It's the pinnacle of what he's praying for here. The surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. Now, when do you think you're going to experience that? (laughs) You want God's power in your life? When do you think it's going to happen? When we are weak, then we are strong. That's right. His power is going to come when we are at our low points. His power is going to come when we are being crushed, when we're being afflicted, when we're being tested, when all these things are happening. And then God says, okay, now. The surpassing greatness of the power towards you who believe. And uh, no comparison. No comparison. In chapter 2 and verse 7, again, there's no comparison. And this is the verse that gets overlooked. As it, we're, all in, we're in a hurry to get to verses 8 and 9, <laughs> right? We love the fact that by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, okay? And I'm, I'm not blaming anybody. I like those verses too. Let's rush to those verses. But Let's slow down and say, well, wait a minute, what's verse 7 about? Okay, I like the fact that we're saved. Okay, And uh, this is how Pastor Cliff opens every Bible class, right? Talking about God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. That's Pastor Cliff's call to worship. So we were all sinners. We were all going to hell, but then God saved us. And uh, so verses 1 through 3 describe our life as unbelievers. And then God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that powerful? We're seated with Christ at the right hand of God the Father. Now don't miss verse 7 in your rush to get into verses 8 and 9. Because there's a purpose clause there in verse 7. So we are raised up with Christ, we are seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, okay? Now in order to to study this, you've got to kind of think bigger than just now. You've got to think bigger than the church age. You've got to think bigger than, and I I get it, I I love the fact that the church age is amazing, from rapture to Pentecost, I mean from Pentecost to rapture, here we are in the church age, but... It's in the ages to come that in the plan of God here, he's got his end end game objective. In the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Here's where super grace comes in, if you ever heard that term. Here's the surpassing grace, and it's not in the church age. When is it? In the ages to come. Okay? And in fact, in context, we've already gone past 110. It's the dispensation of the fullness of time. It's after the rapture. It's after the tribulation. It's after the millennium. It's the ages of the ages and the new heavens and the new earth. The dispensation of the fullness of time. That's what we're looking forward to. And that's where surpassing grace is going to be manifested. In the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us. And doesn't that just blow your mind? It does me. You know, I sing Amazing Grace, and I think amazing's not not a powerful enough adjective. There's got to be something past amazing. Because what we have now, the grace we have today is, is amazing. The grace we have today is that indescribable gift. 
But we haven't seen anything yet. The grace that's coming is, is going to make us forget all about this grace. Okay? When we're in the new heavens and on the new earth, the things of this earth aren't going to be remembered ever again. We're told that. And then chapter 3 and verse 19. Our Father who uh, answers prayer and does so exceeding abundantly beyond all we could ask or think. And as it's described here in Ephesians 3, um, more prayer. That um, verse 16 says that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. Okay? And we pray for that here too. We're going to be in the Word of God. We're going to be growing. We're going to be strengthened in the inner man. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. How many dimensions are there to doctrine? Okay? And then it says, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Hyperbolistic. It is beyond knowledge. See, if you're just growing in knowledge, that's arrogance. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Okay? So yes, by all means, acquire knowledge. But don't, uh, don't depart from love. Don't depart from grace. We're growing in grace and knowledge. So Ephesians 3.19, to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the fullness of God. This is what Paul does. Paul draws these extremes. Paul draws these, uh, these comparisons. And uh, really, I think it pounds the point home. Speaking of pounding the point home, when he says, I uh, suffered the loss of all things and I count it but rubbish. Um, well, our Bible gets a little vulgar this morning and we're going to, we'll be, uh, <clears throat> we'll be diplomatic about it, but um, nevertheless, you didn't know you were going to come to church and learn some Greek swear words this morning, did you? Okay. No, they're not swear words. They're not profane. They're just vulgar. Okay. So it's not a profanity. But uh, when you're talking about rubbish, okay, and rubbish is, it can be rendered rubbish. It can be rendered, but more often than not, it's rendered as, as feces. It's rendered as, as excrement. And it's, it's pretty crude in, in that way. And he wants it to be crude. He wants it to be crude so that he makes the point clear. All that stuff he's, he's getting rid of, he never wants to see it again. Right? He never wants to see it again, and that's the point. When we remove our waste, goodbye, right? We don't ever want to see it again. It's gone. And so this is what he talks about here. So, vulgar language drives the point home. Vulgar language drives the point home. When an author wants to, even Patton said this, he says, when I want it to stick, I give it to him loud and dirty. That way they remember it. <laughs> okay? And... Uh, and Paul does the same thing. And, uh, and, and even some of Jesus' terms were a bit off color in, uh, in the ways that he expressed them. And so this is what we talk about here. This is, this is excrement. This is uh, um, feces. This is, uh, this is uh, why do we have so many words too? You know, we, can, we have medical terms and we have other terms for poop, for things. All right. He says, I count it but... Scubalon, so that I may gain Christ. So the Greek word is scubalon, if you want to know it, and if you want to say it next time you smash your thumb with a hammer. <laughs> you can just shout scubalon, and, and there you go. And it's Greek, so it's okay. But that's what he says. It's gone, and he wants it to be gone. And so uh, Josephus uses this vulgar language. Philo uses this language. Josephus describes the terrible siege of Jerusalem with such vocabulary. Philo uses such vulgarity in describing the nasty hiding places for venomous reptiles. And if you ever spend some time reading these, and uh, they are available in Logos again if you want to read it in uh, English or Greek. Don't have to spend a ton of time on this, but do you ever read the Jewish wars and read some of the, no, read some of the <laughs> 
you know, the fall of Jerusalem was, was, was significant. It was absolutely significant. Historically, eschatologically, prophetically, we're waiting. The fact that the modern state of Israel was resurrected, uh, in our lifetime was, uh, is, is, is unbelievable to consider. Warren, you had a question? Oh, there you go. If you want to subscribe to the Grace Notes courses. Yeah. You can take a Grace Notes courses with quizzes. On uh, on Josephus, so there's your scubula there on the uh, on the right, and um, in describing the war, I mean this was bad in the siege, and uh, you never want to be in a city that's being sieged, besieged, and um, in fact they were paying a fee to try to carry bodies out. So indeed, why do I relate these particular calamities? Well, Menaeus, the son of Lazarus, came running to Titus at this very time and told uh, Titus was a general, still he had not yet become Caesar. Uh, he will quickly become emperor shortly after 70 AD. But, um, and so Menaeus comes running to Titus at this very time and told him there had been carried out through the gate, which was entrusted to his care, no fewer than 115,880 dead bodies. In the interval between the 14th day of the month, Xanthicus, the the, uh, the uh, Jewish month Nisan, when the Romans pitched their camp by the city, and the first day of the month uh, Panemus or Tammuz, again, different uh, languages for different months. This was itself a prodigious multitude, and though this man was not himself set as governor at that gate, yet he was appointed to pay the public stipend for carrying these bodies out, and so was obliged of necessity to number them, while the rest were buried by their relations, though all their burial was but this, to bring them away and cast them out of the city. After this man, uh, there ran away to Titus many of the eminent citizens and told him the entire number of the poor that were dead and that no fewer than 600,000 were thrown out of the gates, though still the number of the rest could not be discovered. And they told him farther than when they were no longer able to carry out the dead bodies of the poor, they laid their corpses on heaps in very large houses and shut them up therein. It was also that a, a medimnus of wheat was sold for a talent. I don't know how much a medimnus is, but you can look that up. And that they, when a while afterward, it was not possible to gather herbs by reason the city was all walled about. Some persons were driven to that terrible distress so as to search the common sewers and old dung hills of cattle and to eat the dung which they got there. And what of old could not endure... Um, so much as to see they now used for food. What they of old could not endure so much as to see, they now used for food. All right. And when the Romans barely heard of all this, they commiserated their case, while the seditious, who also saw it, did not repent, but suffered the same distress to come upon themselves, for they were blinded by the fate which was already coming upon the city and upon themselves also. And about a month later then is when the city's going to fall. That takes you from book five into book six. Anyway, so there's a very pleasant reading for you on this Sunday morning. That's Josephus and then Philo. Um, Philo was about a century earlier and uh, Jewish um, and uh, really involved with uh, Greek philosophy. And where did I find his... I thought I highlighted his as well. Talking about venomous reptiles. Maybe I didn't color it. Here we go, venomous animals. So he's Jewish. He reads Genesis. He reads how God created the animals, and then, but he's also a Greek philosopher, so then he wants to know why, <laughs> okay? And I think we all do, right? Like, why did God make the cockroaches? Why, you know, I mean, there's, there's certain animals, and you're thinking, really? And uh, so the reptiles, they're ven- venomous, and uh, anyway, he's got some theories on this talking about maggots, talking about lice. And my purpose is not to disgust you here this morning, but the language is disgusting. 
Um, some persons have said that venomous animals contribute greatly to many of the objects of physicians and that those who reduce that science to a regular system use them in proper manner and acting with great wisdom and prudence have discovered antidotes so as to be able to contribute to the unexpected safety of those who are in the greatest possible danger. And uh, even at the present time, one may see those persons who apply themselves to the study of medicine in a careful and diligent manner, using all these animals and plants in a most skillful manner in the uh, composition of drugs. So there's the ancient world using venomous animals and finding antidotes and, and, uh, and these other things. The other account has no reference to the practice of physicians, but only as would seem to be the studies of philosophers. For it says that all these things have been prepared by God as engines of punishment against offenders such as generals and rulers prepare halters and chains, on which account, though they are quiet at other times, they are brought out with great power in the case of people who have been condemned and whom nature in her incorruptible tribunal has sentenced to death. Remember when Paul was shipwrecked on that island and he got bit? That snake came out and bit him? And all the natives on the island thought, ooh, Paul's been cursed. This man has been cursed. The gods, you know, he survived the shipwreck, he survived the storm, but the gods aren't going to let him... Uh, you know, escape that easily because uh, clearly when this snake bites him, that's, uh, that's the curse of nature. Anyway, so uh, whom nature in her incorruptible tribunal has sentenced to death, for that they lurk in secret holes and in houses is a falsehood. It is seen that these creatures flee out of cities into the fields and into desert places to avoid man as their master. Uh, not but what, if this is true, there is a certain sense and principle in it, for rubbish is heaped in recesses and quantities of sweepings and refuse. That refuse there is our scubalon. And such things as, our, as what venomous reptiles love to lurk in, besides the fact that their smell has an attractive power over them. All right? Believe that if you wish. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so that's our... That's our doctrine of Scubalon here this morning. I'm not going to take a ton of time with it. But when he says, I reckon all things to be lost and count them, but yeah, put your own, put your own favorite term for that in there. He says, I count it, but that I may gain Christ. Okay. That I may gain Christ. And this is really where the meat of the verse comes in. So knowing Christ, gaining Christ, the intimacy that we have with Christ. The fact is that the Christian way of life from salvation to glory is a process of knowing Him more and more and more than ever before. Okay, And that's what this paragraph is going to develop. That's what this concept is going to spell out. Knowing Christ is a bigger concept than simply becoming saved. Okay, It starts there. Okay, Don't get me wrong. It starts there. If you don't get saved, you'll never know the Lord. Okay, Because that's your introduction. That's, that's the introduction by grace to this, you know, hope in which we stand. That's, that's, uh, you know, that's the first thing. We say, do you know the Lord? That's just a way of saying, are you saved? Do you have eternal life? Okay. And that's where it starts, but it doesn't stop there. Okay. It'd be like, uh, getting married and how well do you know your wife at the altar, right? You're getting married and you know her pretty well because you know that you want to marry her <laughs> and you know that she wants to marry you and, uh, you know, you've, scheduled this so you're there and the, and the pastor is 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 preaching and you say i do and she says i do or i will i will and and then so that's that's how you know her and then you kiss and you walk down the aisle and if that's all you ever know her you're in trouble okay because i mean you got the, the wedding is the easy part. I got to tell you, it's the marriage afterwards. It's the years and years afterwards as you come to know her, as she comes to know you, as you learn the things you didn't know on the wedding day, as she learns the things that she didn't know on the wedding day and wonders why you didn't tell her that beforehand. Okay. okay? And it's that intimacy that, that is nurtured and deepens and, and is just more and more powerful in, uh, in that. So... Um, anyway, it's, it's, it's special. And, uh, one of the ladies I was talking to yesterday had just passed her 60th wedding anniversary and it was fun, fun talking to her about different things there. All right. So here's the point. Let me read through these verses, 8b through 11. So counting them, but rubbish that I may gain Christ. And so we have knowing Christ, 
We have gaining Christ. We have being found in Christ. And then we have um, knowing, again, repeated in verse 10, but, but when it's repeated in verse 10, it's spelled out in the different categories of how we know him. So it says that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And this is not uh, phase one, this is phase two. Okay, We're going to deal with that. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. The fellowship of his sufferings. Think about when you get to know a person, you get to know your spouse, and you get to know them through the difficult times. You get to know them through the testing that you go through together. And uh, the things that you go through when, when a crisis happens. Okay? Something that didn't happen while you were dating. Something that didn't happen, you know, and all the, the fun things. And then there's the, the not fun things. See? In, um, in a marriage. My uncle uh, backed out of his driveway and going to work one morning and accidentally drove over their daughter, my cousin. And um, she was killed instantly. And, and, and Uncle Virgil and Aunt Betty, I mean, this, they had to deal with that. And had to deal with that as a marriage, had to deal with that as parents, to be responsible for the death of your child. And uh, you talk about a test of faith, and just a crushing test, and, 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 and yet they, they came through, they were stronger for it. They would talk in later years about how horrible it was, and yet how it, it blessed their marriage, and how they, they, they came to cling to one another, and cling to the Lord, and learn, learn about grace and forgiveness. And I mean, Uncle Virgil, I mean, how long did it take for him to quit blaming himself for for that, you know. Anyway, they would, and, and they would, they, uh, in, in, for decades afterwards, we'd be talking to uh, family members and other people, young people, and uh, my Aunt Betty just said, I can't understand why young people don't have commitment, why young people are so quick to just run off to the divorce court and give up on a marriage and whatever, because things are getting tough. You know, I'm like, yeah, yeah, preach that, <laughs> okay? Come on, Aunt Betty, preach that, because, you know, that's their experience, and that's what they grew through. That's how they learned. And so we do the same thing as we learn with Jesus, and uh, to know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain, if perhaps maybe I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. And uh, we'll deal with that too, because that's a rapture reference there that uh, we deal with that. All right. And so this is, uh, this is huge, okay? And we're going to take some time with it. I think each of these points requires some development, requires some consideration. And specifically, I think, because of the parallelism with the kenosis hymn we dealt with in chapter two. Do you remember that? The kenosis hymn, how Christ emptied himself. We saw it a moment, uh, at the beginning of this hour, how, um, he existed in the form of God and did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Remember that whole hymn? And it's about his humility. It's about his humbling and how he came and, and, and served us. Well, all those par- uh, uh, many of those terms are paralleled here. Many of the expressions in chapter 2 get repeated here. And I don't think that's an accident. Okay? I, I think that's you know, kind of intentional, <laughs> either on Paul's part or the Holy Spirit's part for inspiring the scripture, or both, inspiring the, the, the text in this way. And so we have consider, that's repeated from chapter 2 to verse to chapter 3. We have form, although he existed in the form of God, took upon himself the form of a bondservant, being found in the likeness of man. We have form in chapter 2. We have form here in, uh, in 3.10, being conformed to his death. And that's uh, formed together with him. And then there's found. He was found in appearance as a man. We want to be found. And so uh, from chapter 2 to chapter 3, and then of course the term for Lord in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, the kurios. And even this, uh, in three eight, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And uh, that's not front-loaded. That's not a requirement to get saved, lordship, right? But it's the development that happens after we're saved. 
the better we know Him, the longer we know Him. And that obedience to His Lordship gets stronger and stronger as He walks us through the valley of the shadow of death and everywhere else. So all of these parallelisms, I think it's, it's huge. I think you can think of chapter 2 as the song of Jesus' humility, and in chapter 3 it's the song of our humility. Paul expressed it, but we should all express it. We all want to imitate that. We want to, we want to reflect everything that Paul's reflecting here in, uh, in this, ter- in this uh, song, starting with the idea of gaining Christ, of winning Christ, profiting Christ. Okay? Well, don't I have that the moment I'm saved? Isn't that something I get when I believe in Christ? When I believe in Christ, don't I gain Christ? Oh, but not in this way. Okay, like I say, that's the introduction. We continue to gain Christ. We continue to win Christ. We continue to profit Christ. More and more and more with each victory, with each uh, assignment, with each thing that we, uh, that we go through. All right? So where do we start with this? Let's start with gaining Christ. Remember, this was the, the, the term we studied last week and the week before in terms of profit and loss. If I'm going to gain Christ, it means I'm going to win Christ, I'm going to profit Christ. It's the experiential realization of our positional reality. Okay, and I've used those terms before, I'm going to use them again. Gaining Christ is the experiential realization of our positional reality. And if, if pictures help, I'll draw pictures and we'll look at these verses. But there is a positional reality. Let me draw a picture here for you. There is a positional reality. No, no thanks. No surveys. This is positional. And this is reality. Who we are in Christ. What Christ has done on our behalf. Our baptism into union with Christ. And so I have righteousness. I have eternal life. I have a a position in Christ. Baptized in union with Him. I am identified with Jesus Christ. All of that is positionally true. All of that is an absolute eternal reality that sadly many Christians are completely oblivious to. They don't study it. They don't learn it. They don't live it. They don't digest it. They don't process it. And so we have to have a, uh, a mechanism by which we can then experience the positional truth. And this is where it becomes experiential. Okay, It's a subjective experience to the objective reality. And this is where it becomes real. Real in our thinking, real in our decision-making process, real in our actions. It becomes an experiential realization. See the difference between a reality and a realization? For instance, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. That's a positional reality. But until you learn the doctrine, until it shapes your thinking, and until that thought process then orients your decision-making and your actions and your whole Christian walk, it's not an experiential realization. And so you get all these Christians out there that positionally they're, they're saved, positionally they're dead in Christ, but experientially they're just as big a sinners as the unbelievers are. Okay? They're not being renewed in the spirit of their mind. They don't have that realization. They go, oh, you know what? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. It is Christ who lives in me. See, and so all of these realities have to become subjective realizations. And then the bridge that brings it across, of course, is walking by faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's by faith that we understand what the objective truth is, and we make it the subjective experience. And so that's what we're dealing with here in terms of gaining Christ in terms of, uh, of all of these principles here, gaining Christ and knowing Christ and, and uh, everything else that's described in this, in this segment here, is all centering on our experience. It's centering on how we're living out the truth that God has made clear in His Word. Okay? And if that sounds difficult, well, it kind of is. Because it means you've got to study. It means you've got to study to present yourself approved. 
it means it's just not an automatic thing, okay? Again, like I said, the, the wedding is the easy part. Uh, salvation is the easy part. <laughs> you know, how hard is it to get saved? Believe in Jesus, okay? He did all the work. Believe in Jesus. That's the easy part. Now you're saved, okay. Remember the hard part is the, the marriage afterwards. The hard part is the Christian walk afterwards. Because now that you're saved, now, man, you're saved unto good works that are prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. And that's going to include a struggle. That's going to include conflict. And, uh, you know, he didn't just give you a suit of armor so that you could look stylish. He gave you a set of armor because you're going to war. There's an angelic conflict out there. There's the world, the flesh, and the devil, and they are out to get you. There's a reason why that Christian walk is called a, a struggle. It's a race. And so all these things, um, when, when you start to realize, you know what? I, I must be about my father's business. Okay? Now Jesus got there at the age of 12. We get there at different stages. But we, we, we get there and we say, I must be about my father's business. I, I, I'm not, I haven't been serious about my Christian walk up till now. I've been kind of part-time in it. But you know, the time in front of me is so much shorter and the time behind me, I've, I've wasted a lot of it. I've got to be about my father's business. And today's the day. Starting today, I'm, I'm going to get grounded in doctrine. I'm going to be studying. I'm going to be learning. I'm going to be living. Because I've wasted enough time. I'm going to be living in the Word of God. I want this positional reality to become an experiential realization. And so I want to know Him. I want to, be, I want to gain Him. I want to be found in Him. To be discovered, to be observed, to be testified about. By uh, God, by angels, by men, by friends, by enemies. <laughs> Who all is going to find me in Christ? All of the above. All of the above. Okay, In time and eternity, I'm going to be found. And I'm either going to be found in Christ, glorifying Him, or I'm going to be found carnal i'm going to be found selfish i'm going to be found um you know is it going to be well done good and faithful servant or is it going to be you wicked lazy slave and that's just when the when the lord pronounces it at the bema seat okay before then how am i going to be found how uh, what's my reputation like among the unbeliever what's my reputation like among the saints what uh what is the testimony are younger believers looking to me as a as an example to emulate or younger believers looking at me and saying, ooh, don't do that. <laughs> okay? You're an example either way. You want to be a good example. Okay? You don't want to be the negative example where the pastor points at you and says, yeah, don't, don't copy that person. To be found in him. And to, in the power of his resurrection. That's power we're supposed to be using today. That's not just, well, I'm going to die someday and then someday after that my body will come back to life. It's not a future resurrection. It's a present power of the resurrection today. We walk in the newness of life today, and that's a resurrection power. The power of His resurrection. Not my future resurrection, His resurrection. That's a power I have available today. The sharing of His sufferings. We'll discuss that. We'll discuss the, the intimacy that comes as we bear one another's burdens. And, uh, because they're all His sufferings. And death conformity. You know what death conformity is? That is agape love. No, no greater love than laying down your life. Death conformity is sacrificial love thinking. Okay? And so we'll set her on that. Anyway, that's a lot in front of us. On Wednesday night, Lord willing, rapture pending, we'll come back and we'll, uh, we'll start to tackle these items one by one. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for this morning. Thank you for the truth of the Word of God. And Father, I do pray that your Holy Spirit would um, take this information and, and uh, make it real to each one of us, transform the, re the reality into a realization that, Father, our, our souls would be strengthened, that our thinking would be impacted, that we would process this, not only just for the sake of knowing it, but for the blessing of living it out and recognizing how it, uh, how it applies in, in our priesthood and uh, how it applies in our local church. Father, I do thank you also this morning. We've got a number of visitors with us today, and, and I just pray if there's anybody here that um, 
does not have faith, does not have hope, does not have eternal life, that does not understand what Jesus accomplished on the cross and uh, why it is that we must place our faith in him so as to receive eternal life. Father, I pray that today would be the day that all of the false issues would be set aside and the one true issue is made clear. I pray that today would be the day that the veil of darkness would be pierced and that the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ would shine forth. Might it even be today, Father. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.